Welcome everyone to this LSE event online. My name is Minou Shafiq and I'm the Director of London School of Economics and Political Science and delighted to have you all joining us here for this event which is being hosted by the Grantham Research Institute on Climate Change and the Environment. And I'm especially pleased to be welcoming Professor Sapartha Dasgupta uh, to this event today. Sapartha Dasgupta is a pioneer in the field of environmental economics. He is the Frank Ramsey Emeritus Professor of Economics at the University of Cambridge, although as he reminded me, he started his academic career at LSE. He's also chair of the management board of the Center for the Study of Existential Risk. He was made a Knight Bachelor by the Queen for Services to Economics in 1992, and is the recipient of numerous prizes, including the Blue Planet Prize in 2015, which recognizes outstanding contributions to improving the global environment. Father Descripta is, is leading an independent global review of the economics of biodiversity sponsored by the UK's Treasury. The final review will report in the autumn ahead of COP15, which is the International Biodiversity Summit, which is to take place in Kunming, China, where new global biodiversity targets will be set ahead of the COP26 climate summit, which will be held here in the UK. The interim report that Professor Dasgupta and the review team have prepared will be the focus of his remarks today. This report sets out the economic and scientific concepts that will underpin the final review. It doesn't set out options or make recommendations, which will be the subject of the final review. But today is an opportunity for us to understand the issues, particularly around humanity's engagement with nature, how we transform it, disrupt it, and how we must do things differently to enhance our collective wealth and well-being and that of our descendants. For those of you using Twitter in the audience, the hashtag for today's event is hashtag LSE Biodiversity. And this online, is being, online event is being recorded and will be made available on podcast. There'll also be a chance for you to ask questions to Professor Dasgupta. To submit them, please use the Q&A function at the bottom of your screen. Because we have so many people participating today, those questions will come to me and I will pose them to as many of them as possible to Partha in the time available. Please, please, I encourage you to put your name, affiliation and location uh, in your question because we like to make sure we have as broad a representation of questions as we possibly can. And with that, I'm now delighted to hand over to Professor Dasgupta to present his preliminary findings. Partha, over to you. Well, thank you very much. It's a pleasure and an honor to address um, a lecture sponsored by the LSC. Um, and as you say, I'll be speaking to the interim report and summarizing it in some sense and putting it in a broader perspective, I hope. Um, the natural world which we inhabit and are a part of, and I emphasize the fact that we are part of it, does not appear in contemporary theories of or practice of economic growth and development. That sounds an outrageous remark, but it happens to be true. If you study indices like GDP or the United Nations Human Development Index, uh, nature doesn't appear. By nature, I'll talk, I'll be speaking really about the biosphere, which is that part of Earth that is inhabited by living organisms, and that includes each of us, 
And if you, if it's if if um, our own existence is a link in evolutionary time, when I I mean human existence, not just you and I, um, then economic history, which interests me a great deal, is a dot, not even a blink. And uh, because we have very little data, what we do have, and we have some reason for being sanguine that we know, dates back to approximately 1 CE, in other words, a 2,000-year span. And for most of that period, life was very Malthusian. Few people, high death rates, high birth rates, but it was an equilibrium, and people were dirt poor, approximately 1.5 times the poverty line established by the World Bank, or about $1.9 a day at 2011 prices. That's, that's pretty poor. For most of human history, humans have been very, we have been very poor. Things, if you talk to, if you talk to economic historians, they will say things have been happening. Changes were taking place all through to make things happen, which we have experienced. But if you look at the, say, GDP per capita, time series of that, things started really bubbling up about 1750, about the start of the Industrial Revolution. But this spectacular increase took place uh, in my living memory, that is about 1950. And I mean, you might think that's odd to think that um, our imprint on the biosphere is really, has been really very recent. Uh, let, you, let me show you slide one. The first slide, please. There you have on the left-hand side, the first slide on the left-hand side, global real GDP in international prices. And you see the incredible increase from 1950 onwards. In 1950, uh, GDP per capita, uh, total GDP, the world was about $8 trillion, international dollars in 2011 prices. Um, today, it's about $116 trillion. So we have an increase of a, 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 a nearly 15-fold increase in global output of uh, final goods and services measured at market prices. Now, I emphasize GDP here because it's a surrogate for our impact. That's what I have in mind. Our activities. Of course, it's an understatement because so much of our activities are not measured in GDP. Nevertheless, beggars can't be choosers, and I'm using GDP as simply a, 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 a template on which to uh, hang the impact we have on the biosphere. That's in some sense our demand. We take material out of the biosphere, we transform it, use it to our purposes, and throw it back. And I'll come back to this throwing back of the rubbish we create, the waste products we create, because that has to be dealt with also, and the biosphere deals with it and is a strain on the biosphere. And I'll come back to this issue later, perhaps at question time. If you look at the right-hand side diagram, it's a composite of, uh, of a time series of our impact, what actually has been happening to the biosphere, uh, the result of, it, of our activities. Are, um, and it's a composite, composite that has been constructed by Earth scientists. And it again shows a rapid increase from about 1950 onwards. This diagram gives you global terrestrial bi biosphere degradation 
measured as a de decline in the mean species abundance. It's a very rough, don't take the numbers all that seriously, it's the shape of the curve that really matters. Uh, this is a very approximate science, but it's so important that the approximation should not make us balk at looking at them. So something has been happening this last 70 years. And um, if you ask Earth scientists the significance of it, they will say we had entered the Anthropocene in 1950. That's their official view. If you talk to public intellectuals, on the other hand, uh, they will say we've never had it so good. Both are correct. We have never had it so good. That my generation, for example, has had the, has a unique opportunity of enjoying things. But the flip side of it is, which is what the ecologists and environmental scientists emphasize, is that we have also never had it so bad in that we're leaving our, a very diminished Earth for our great-grandchildren. The biosphere, from the economist's point of view, could be, seen, could be thought of as being a gigantic asset. It's a factory churning out goods and services for us. Um, it, many of the goods and many of the services are actually unobservable. They're happening in the soil. They're happening in wetlands. They're happening in the forest, which we are now beginning to degrade. Uh, the background services are producing goods, which we then use for our purposes. And it's that which is missing in our GDP calculation, because of course in GDP, you do not um, depreciate, you don't include the depreciation of capital. So it doesn't reflect what we are doing to the biosphere. It's convenient and it's correct to break up the biosphere into what we call ecosystems, which can range from a garden pond up to as large as a uh, tropical rainforest. The precise definition of a bios ecosystem doesn't really matter. It's not very important. It's a unit of account, if you like, a unit of observation. But peering into ecosystems is the idea of biomass. And I'm trying to draw a parallel between the ecologist's way of looking at the nature and economist's way of looking at human society. The parallels are uncanny. The unit they will use is biomass which is the mass expressed in weight, kilograms, for example, of living material. So a tree has biomass, fish has biomass, and so forth. And I began by saying that we should look at the biosphere and ecosystems as capital assets. But bear in mind, the view itself is on biodiversity. It's not about ecosystems. So what is biodiversity? It's the, of course, the diversity of life, that's for sure. But biodiversity itself is not a, an asset. It's a feature of an asset. It's a feature of ecosystems. We ask, is that ecosystem rich in the diversity of life, or is it very narrowly specialized? Should, I'm going to summarize a very rich and highly technical, complex literature, which says that, broadly speaking, biodiversity is good for the health of an ecosystem. The parallel with Economic systems would be to think of biodiversity as much like trust in a human society. If a human society, people do not trust one another, it's not going to flourish. So it's a character of a, of a, of a system. And our interest in biodiversity lies in its fact that it reflects 
the productivity of an ecosystem in terms of what it can produce for us. I'm taking in here an anthropocentric view. Later, if you wish me to expand on it at question time, I'll be happy to do that, but I won't have very much to say. The anthropocentric viewpoint is uh, the one which we can handle very easily, but we can expand on it if you like. Um, so I suggested that the economics of biodiversity addresses a, a, an asset management problem, which to economists should be a familiar exercise. And I now want to show slide two to indicate how badly we have managed our portfolio of assets. The top figure gives you the breakdown of, uh, of, an, of the world's, the globe's total wealth in terms of natural capital, which I'm going to call, I'm calling natural capital, as all that stuff out there in nature. It includes, by the way, fossil fuels and minerals, but I'm here concerned with the biological side of the living side of nature. So it's natural capital. Produced capital is an expression we economists use to describe roads and buildings, all the stuff, the hardware, the stuff that we build, roads, building, ports, and all. Basically, what you regard as the fruits of our investment activities. And a third is human capital, which includes health and education, of course, aptitude. And economists have ways of trying to estimate uh, human capital these days. And there have been attempts at um, measuring natural capital. United Nations Environment Program is a leading participant in that exercise. I myself have done some. So broadly, these are very crude calculations, but the estimate is that the share of wealth today, in 2014-ish, the, the diagram is on that, about 21% was uh, produced capital, 56% human capital, and 22% natural capital. So same order of magnitude, roughly speaking, for natural and human capital uh, and produced capital and a great deal in human capital. By the way, I should say that if you really measure human capital correctly, which is in to include life expectancy, then it's a lot higher than 56%. But that's a detail. Now, looking at shares alone won't tell you very much. Because you might say, well, so what? If, if, if the global wealth is only a fifth of global wealth is natural capital, does that mean it's important or it's not important? I mean, how am I to tell? That would be a very reasonable question. So what we do is to ask, what's the rate of return on these assets? Now, that's an interesting question to ask, and it's darn hard to answer. But I found a way of doing it. If you take biomass as your unit, as ecologists do, there have been estimates of the total biomass, aggregate biomass of the, um, of the planet. And these are, again, approximate figures, crude as they are, but nevertheless, we have to work with something. 550 trillion kilograms of biomass is an estimate. What's the output side? Now, I'm trying to draw a parallel. Biomass would be like saying wealth, ecological wealth. What about ecological output? Well, the eco ecologists have a conception of that as well, and they call it net primary productivity. It's the net production of biomass per year, per unit of time. So it's a flow, like income. And that has been estimated at about 105 trillion kg. So, of course, when I saw the figures, I had to dig them up. And my natural instinct was to divide one by the other to get something like an average rate of return. 
turns out to be 19%. Now, here's the trick. That's not the own rate of return. The reason is that biomass is not uniformly distributed on Earth. The polar biomass is very different from a rainforest biomass, nor is it as productive. So what you have to do is to ask yourself, what's the highest rate of return in the biosphere on natural capital? Just as you would do in a portfolio. You might have an average return on your portfolio, but at the end of the day, you will ask, which one gave me the biggest kick? And if you do that, you know that the average is, of course, the rock bottom minimum of what you're after. So the 19% I've just now quoted is a lower bound. The real rate of return on the biosphere as a capital asset is much higher, maybe an order of magnitude higher. I couldn't tell. But if you compare that with, say, re return on government bonds, even 19% looks extremely juicy because you're comparing it with about 5%. So you can see immediately that there has been a huge mismatch, huge mis mis uh, um, accumulation of the various types of capital assets. Because, of course, ideally, you would like to equalize the rates of return, corrected for capital gains. I'm ignoring that for the moment because if I were to include it, the scene would be even worse. Because 19% versus 4% means the produced capital's value or price ought to be going up relative to natural capital. But we have been degrading natural capital and accumulating uh, produced capital, so it's going in the perverse way. There's all this way of summarizing that we have really mismanaged our dealings with our home, uh, the where home we reside. We've been desecrating the biosphere. Desecrating nature, it's like desecrating your own home. Now, how have we got to this? Why has this happened? There is a very standard answer, which happens to be correct, and I'll give it to you, which is much of Mother Nature is free. We don't charge for it. We don't pay a price for it. And one reason it is free is that nature is very mobile. The wind blows, the rivers flow, birds and insects fly. So it's literally impossible to have proper pro property rights assigned to them. So a commodity, an asset which should is valued, has a social value, a great deal of social value, comes free of charge. On top of that, of course, government subsidize uh, our use of nature. Uh, my young colleagues at the, my team have estimated that it's running nearly $10 trillion a year of subsidies. So it's not even free, it's negative price. So you can see we have a problem here. We've been mismanaging our assets in a massive way. Can I have slide three, please? So I've tried to summarize, I thought it'll be nice to summarize the, both the supply and the demand sides of our, our dealings with nature, with our home. And on the left-hand side in this picture, it's been drawn by one of my colleagues and my team, it's the globe and what's going through that faucet, you, should, you could interpret as sunlight because that's the medium of uh, communication between Earth system and the rest of the universe so far as we are concerned. Um, on the left-hand side is our impact, what we take out of the biosphere, out of nature, and what we throw back in and it has to deal with it. And that impact I've brought up, brought, brought, broken up into three components. GDP, sorry, two components, GDP and the efficiency with which we transform 
uh, the biosphere's um, services and goods into final products. The efficiency is very important. And I've written GDP as capital N times small y, and capital N is global population and small y is per capita income. The product, of course, is global GDP. And I'm divided by this notional notion of an efficiency. I call it, let's call it alpha. I'm still sticking to the left-hand side. If alpha increases, other things remaining the same, that ratio declines. If the numerator in y increases, other things remaining the same, the numerator increases. On the right-hand right side is what I was calling net primary productivity, if you like, what the biosphere is generating on an annual basis. Think of it as a forest which grows and parts of it die. It's the net growth which is on the right-hand side. Think of a fishery. Again, it's the growth in biomass of the fishery. I'm generalizing from that and thinking of the biosphere as a self-regenerative resource. Now, it is the key thing that we forget is that the right-hand side is bounded above because the earth is bounded. It's not going to, you can't make the right-hand side become infinity by no stretch. The technological fix is going to be on the left-hand side, namely, how do we increase alpha? And much the greatest of focuses in the economics of climate change has been with alpha. Mitigation, adaptation has to do with alpha. And of course, climate change is only handling one aspect, one part of our treatment of nature, which is carbon emission. My subject includes pretty much everything else. It includes, of course, carbon too, but it includes all else. It's the numerator which, therefore, is of interest also. You can't simply concentrate on alpha. And I'm going to conclude by making the observation that our biosphere is so heterogeneous. It's so rich in its tapestry and the complexity of the forces, the, the processes that shape it, this, the rhythm, the natural rhythm of nature, which is work operating at vast differences in scale from, from people's stomachs, which are ecosystems, to the Pacific Ocean, which is a biome, and at various speed, some lasting for thousands of years some as fast as seconds, microseconds. So the general, the overall rhythm is an amalgamation of the rhythmic uh, movements of the various components of the biosphere. And so it is in the nature of the beast that alpha cannot be, you can't simply concentrate on alpha. Because if you do, there are anticipated consequences very often. You try and fix one thing or make one thing efficient and out comes another thing which creates other pressures on the biosphere. Human history is full of it. For example, energy use has been one. You did not know 200 years ago that the Industrial Revolution certainly didn't, their revolutionists certainly didn't know that coal burning was going to create a, um, a uh, greenhouse effect. So in the review, we spend time discussing future N, ways of affecting future N, ways of affecting small y, namely per capita income, and of course, ways of handling alpha too. But it is important, and I want to conclude by observing that 
we are not going to, in the review, be able to come up with a single uh, recommendation. In the economics of uh, in, uh, climate change, you have an easy target. You have one index, and you want to see how to reduce that index. And it's the nature of the beast to think of the manipulation of that index as being the role of government and the role of governments through the United Nations. It's a natural way of thinking about it. It's a natural way of thinking of a top-down mechanism by which you manage that part of our activity. The economics of biodiversity in contrast is a heterogeneous mess. But that mess, of course, makes the subject extremely beautiful. It's one of the most beautiful sciences I've ever come across. And so it's been a privilege working on it. There's not going to be a simple policy because what is required to be done in a village in Bihar is going to be substantially different. The possibilities open to that. The communitarian activities that are possible in Bihar will be different from the communitarian possibilities in sub-Saharan Africa or in the, the deserts of, in the, in the, the grasslands of sub-Saharan Africa or in the rainforests of Brazil. On top of that, you have incredible variation in government governments, governance. So I'll leave you with those thoughts because, but because it's a mess. We are in a mess. We have created our mess. It's very recent happening. And we, we owe it to our grandchildren and great-grandchildren to start moving things in a direction where this inequality that is staring ahead of you is brought into something like an, an equality so that what we but with the impact we have is matched by the ability of the biosphere to, to provide it on a sustainable basis. Thank you very much. Thank you very much, Tata. Uh, thank you very much. Let me uh, start with an opening question. Uh, the sort of classical definition of sustainability is that you leave the next generation an equivalent amount of natural productive and human capital as you inherited. And implicit, implicit in that is that they are substitutable. If you leave the next generation lots of education and lots of really efficient machines, yeah. but you've depleted natural capital, they could be even better off than previous generations if you manage that well. You seem to imply something different, that the, that the excessive depletion of natural capital is a problem. Tell, do you think that capital is substitutable across these assets? Well, as, 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 as you all know, we economists like to give it both a yes and a no answer. We have lived off the idea of it being substitutable, and it's served us very well. But the very fact that it's, the biosphere is in great strain suggests it is not very substitutable. So we have evidence of both. Certainly when you have a double glazing in your house, you're substituting. That's a substitution of produced capital for natural capital, that's for sure. But those anecdotes, we have made so much of those anecdotes that we, we have misled our model building. I began by saying we are part of the biosphere, part of nature. We're not outside it. Most of growth theory, almost all of growth theory, the practice of growth and development economics, is founded on the idea that we are external, 
to the biosphere. We like a fisherman going to fishing in a pond. We take out fish, we eat it, and then dump it back into the pond if we want to have a barbecue there. But and then we leave. But here we can't leave, we are part of it. And how does that transform itself into operational significance? If you look at the, uh, can I have the third slide again? That's right. So we're really looking at alpha. We are asking ourselves, can we substitute our way so, so that alpha keeps on increasing so we can have the numerator also keeping on increasing so that the ratio keeps this bounded because we know that the right-hand side is bounded above, right? So that's the trick we've been, and that's, that's the route we've been following by the lead of our intuition as regards economic possibilities. The problem is that increasing alpha indefinitely is not possible. And the reason for that is that think of what technological progress really amounts to. It requires of you to have R&D, research and development expenditure. To have alpha going up indefinitely means you have to assume that no matter how large GDP is, how much, how high alpha has become, at the margin, research and development expenditure will not require anything. It will be, require vanishingly small amounts of the biosphere. So there is a limiting argument there saying at the end of the day, we can escape from the biosphere and live on our own. That is not acceptable. That's blatantly nonsense. So alpha is bounded. It's not, you cannot jack it up indefinitely, which means the numerator has to be bounded. You can't jack that up indefinitely. Now, there's no reason to believe that global population is not bounded, although we'll be overshooting ourselves at the end of the 20th, end of the 20th century. I'll come back to that if there is a question. The issue isn't whether we're going to flatten our population size. But even if we do that, we'll need to flatten our per capita GDP. And that is not being it's not on the agenda of growth and development economics, uh, nor in the agenda of the sustainable development goals. Let me ask uh, two questions from uh, our very large audience of over a thousand participants, which is wonderful, which are related to thinking about biodiversity in the current context of the coronavirus crisis. One is from Elaine King, who's with the Chilterns Conservation Board, who asks, as I joined this webinar, the headline on BBC Radio 4's World at One was asking, how do we grow the economy as quickly as possible after the coronavirus outbreak? My question is, how do we convince decision makers in government and business that securing the health and well-being of people, uh, sorry about that, securing the health and well-being as people of people is as important as we plan the recovery from the coronavirus outbreak is as essential as securing economic growth. And if I could add to that a question we've had from Delhi, from Sadamini Das, who asks, yes, yeah, Sadamini asks, the present coronavirus has its genesis in the destruction of biodiversity and unsustainable lifestyles. Post-COVID, Governments and industrial houses hopefully will, main, will, will mainstream the environment and bi biodiversity protection. How these changed mindsets are going to affect the willingness to pay for ecosystem services and how will they be captured in our analysis in the economics of biodiversity? Wow, that's, uh, that's a mouthful. I wouldn't be able to answer most of it. I'm not a psychologist. Sadamoni is, of course, absolutely right. The fragmentation of 
the biosphere is very much at the root of the problem. We pride ourselves in thinking that we can occupy any niche in the in the in the in the ecosystem in the biomes of of the world, and which we can. We can go down twelve twelve thousand miles down into the Pacific. We can shoot up. We can horizontally penetrate any part of the biosphere and build roads on the on the surface of the of the earth. And that has been a, pr a prime cause for periodic eruptions. Um, fragmentation is certainly so globalization has caused some serious problems there. Now, how we emerge out of the uh, uh, what lies ahead is not for me to say, it's for us to decide as citizens and with our voting power in those places where we do have a vote. The, um, I think one, the idea of how do we have growth itself is a questionable question in the sense that globally, even if there is a cut of uh, 10%, 15%, 20%, remember that's the state of affairs only 30, 40 years ago. You saw the rapid rise in GDP. We mustn't forget that only 40 years ago, we were that much poorer globally. I mean, I'm talking about global average. I'm not I'm talking about distribution. I mean, income at, at any moment in time, I'm talking only globally. So that that memory, if you have that memory, should discipline us a bit as to to to, to contend with the the the, the uh, with the uh, tension that we have in furthering our own uh, our own wants and what we leave behind for the next generation. Now, you the, uh, the director pointed out that the idea of sustainable development was leaving behind adequate assets. But the question is, there's a multiplicity of assets, at least three aggregates. What's the weighting system there to get a quantitative idea of a aggregate asset? And that would be, of course, wealth, an inclusive notion of wealth, the stock of all the stuff that we actually have and value them. And the asset management problem that I discussed in the lecture transforms itself into the measurement of wealth as the criterion by which we judge whether economy is being successful in its enterprises. If wealth increases, other things equal, normalizing for population, the country has improved its lot, has made progress. That could run counter to GDP, by the way. Mm -hmm. So just as households worry about wealth, just as firms worry about their balance sheet, which is wealth, nations and the world as a whole should be concerned with wealth, not how do we grow in our incomes. That brings me very logically to two questions we've got that go to the question of measurement and how do we measure wealth and progress. So one from BK Sinha in Kuala Lumpur, who asks, uh, just get that question, who asks, what is the relationship between the economic loss we're experiencing globally currently and the environmental costs which are ignored in business costings thus far? And and a related question from Aldo Ravazzi, who's the technical secretary to the Italian Natural Capital Committee, who asks, which steps going forward do you see as most mature for integrating biodiversity, natural capital, and ecosystem services into national accounting and into companies' accounts? So making progress on measurement, what do you think? Well, the, uh, the, the again, outstandingly good questions. The, I can't really comment on what firms ought to do they have their own aims and ambitions. I can only advise them is in, uh, in 
avoiding double speak, if you see what I mean, doing one thing and saying something else. I can speak, however, of the attempts of governments to create national wealth accounts, uh, and the United Nations is much more much involved in it. Now, the idea is this: you can't. Good theory, good economics, wants a tight way of framing the questions, and an ideal system. And then once you've got that licked, intellectually licked, and we have that intellectually licked, you back off because you have to back off and say, no, we can't do that. So many things are missing. It would be fatuous to uh, equate um, education with the value of education with the value of uh, uh, the rainforest. Either way, we go under. If there's no education, we are sunk. If there is no rainforest, we are sunk. Okay, so we don't want, we don't want to do that. But what you do, do want to do is to have partial estimates, estimates of bits and pieces of your wealth, and see if, and look at the indicators the way I was suggesting we do in the first slide, and see what what the indicators look like. Be so you wouldn't have a unitary measure of you wouldn't have a common currency, so to speak. Yes, you that's right. Aim. That's right. And I don't think uh, the the idea that you can measure everything is just not there. It's, it's, it's wrong. There'll be lots of things that are missing. But the fact that they're missing shouldn't make you think that they're of zero value. That's where we make our biggest error in economic measurement. We think because something is not there in the data, it must mean it's valueless. We can ignore it. We'll have to have qualitative pictures always side by side with quantitative estimates. So let me come back to you on uh, some of the failings of economics with a question from Sophus Ermagson from the University of Kent, uh, who says, your report says that mainstream economics has failed to conceptualize the economy as a subsystem of the earth system. But fields like ecological economics have tried to conceptualize this since at least the 1972 Limits to Growth report. Why do you think heterodox economics has failed to penetrate the mainstream on this front? And what makes you think you can change it now? The uh, latter I can't answer. I have no presumptions that I'll be changing anything. I was asked to prepare a review, and I'm trying to do as honest a job as I can. Once I've completed it, I'll go on to something else. And if people want to, me to speak about something I passionately care, I will do so. And I passionately care about it. Whether if I spend my time worrying about whether I'll be able to influence anybody, then I'll be a nervous wreck, and I don't need that. <laughs> so that's not going to work. Okay, uh, why hasn't it? Uh, they've been saying it since 1972. The problem with, again, I'll probably make enemies amongst my friends, but the the reason I haven't followed that literature at all is that they dismissed economics. My criticism is not about econo of e economics. It's a fantastic subject. <laughs> we are the heirs of people like Smith and Ricardo, Marx, and in our own time, Paul Samuelson, Kenneth Arrow. I mean, these are giants by any, any standard, and they were not exactly wasting their time. They were creating a discipline with rigor, and I'm part of that, um, that tradition. I care about economic logic, the reasoning, the apparatus that we've got. My criticism really of mainstream economics at least economics of growth and development, remember, that's all I was concentrating on, I was country, is that it has ignored natural capital, the biosphere, and has implicitly and very often explicitly uh, 
espoused a view of globalization, which evens out everything and thinks, gives a conceptual picture of us as being external to the biosphere, and that is unacceptable. If you include that, what I've tried to do in my own work and in this review, summarizing in this review, is to bring the tools of economics right and proper. There's not one move I make which will be alien to an economist. Um, pretty much everything in it comes straight out of the economics toolbox. Except, of course, I've had to tweak, I've had to create many new things within it, that's for sure. But that's normal science. It's nothing revolutionary. So to have it, there have been people who have worried about the fact that nature is important and we, we are ignoring it, that's for sure. But that's not, that's the first step of the argument. It's an observation, it's not even an argument. And I didn't see the limits to growth doing anything of that. It was pointing out the limits to growth. And of course, we could counter it by saying, well, what about substitutability? No answer to that. I'm trying to provide an answer. So economics is a very powerful subject and I commend it to, to you. Very good. Let me um, start to move the conversation in the direction of solutions. And we've got a question from Claire Medina in Malawi. Uh, who asked, the concept of payment for ecosystem services is increasingly being used as a way to address the problem that you've described. What would your opinion be of that as a potential part of the solution? Very good question, and I'm very all with you there. I think it's a very, very powerful tool. It's Some people say that it's like creating markets out of nature, but it isn't. It's slightly different. It's much more subtle because it, uh, it's administered markets. And it has to be of significance because so much of the biosphere is a public good. Uh, it flows around benefiting all of us. So the, benef the beneficiaries need to find a way to, uh, to, to, to pay for it. Brazil currently the Brazilian government currently is of the opinion that burning the forest down uh, to, in order to make way for cattle ranches or soybean production and so forth is good for its economy. So who are we to complain? And that's for sure. If we call the, the Amazonian rainforest the, the Earth's lungs, it's a public good of mammoth uh, importance. Ask yourself what would happen if there were no Brazilian rainforest left. Uh, we would be out. Uh, it's a staggering uh, implications which ecologists have tried to work through. Imagine yourself uh, asking what would happen if there was no life left in the oceans, which I did ask of the chief scientist at the National um, Hist Natural History Museum. His answer was basically life other than bacteria would be extinct in a, in a matter of decades. So these are infinitely valuable objects. We ought to pay for it. Um, if we get our act together, we, the nations could subsidize Brazil, pay for preserving rainforest to make up for the losses that Brazil, Brazil thinks she will be losing out by not raiding it. Of course, we haven't ma managed it very well over climate change, so I have no particular reason to believe this will come <laughs> to anything either. But the logic of it is what the question was about. Okay. Is it capable? Absolutely right. 
payments for ecosystem services beneficiaries should be paying. Okay, I have a pair of questions which are somewhat related. One from Luis Rielli uh, in Brazil, who's asking about issues of population and is it really the main driver of the imbalance uh, that we're seeing in your equation? And a related question on from uh, Najma Mohammed from the Green Economy Coalition in London, asking about whether we can uh, question issue begin to whether we need to question conspicuous consumption as the goal of prosperity and happiness and can we think about new economic models that are centered on values of well-being solidarity sufficiency and inclusion so is population the problem or is how much each person is consuming the problem? those are very good questions and we'll be addressing them in the in the review we have already addressed quite a bit of them in the chapters that that have been written, written. So let me take the two sequentially. Uh, when you say is the main driver, population is the main driver, it's not main driver, there are, th there are at least three parameters there on the left-hand side, N and Y and alpha. So each is a driver. Each affects the other, by the way. They're not independent of each other, that's for sure. We need deeper models to be able to generate the alpha and the N and the alpha and the Y, and we have models of that. So that's not a problem either. Uh, we understand the something of the motivations. Plus, of course, this equation is extremely aggregate. It's global. If you then break it down into regional uh, and so forth, you will get, um, get different flavors of that same problem. Okay. So it's not so much the main driver. It's the totality of drivers which is leading us in the wrong direction. And we have to be intelligent about noticing where to hit. So if you look at small y, there is no way, for example, if you look at now places which have very high fertility rates, we're looking at future end, remember, we are not controlling current end, and it's future end through, through fertility behavior, reproductive behavior of people who are already here. Uh, if you look at the highest fertility growth rate areas, which will be in sub-Saharan Africa, the, the data are absolutely transparent. The United Nations um, Population Division produces impeccable work annually, sometimes even monthly, they will have newsletters which will tell us about these. Um, we are expecting the, the, their projection is there'll be another 3 billion, approximately 3 billion, just under 3 billion extra souls in Sub-Saharan Africa at 2,100. However, up to now, even about a billion in Sub-Saharan Africa, they have had nothing to, nothing to do with the dramatic increase in the demands the humanity has made on the um, on the biosphere, their GDP, Sub-Saharan African GDP, is about three to four percent of world GDP. They're nothing in terms of the impact. So they cannot be They cannot be. The finger cannot go there. What worries some of us would be what lies ahead for them if population grows at that. Right? These are choices that have to be made by every society, and it's not for me to say what, what should do, I can only expose the directions in which the variables are moving. Talk about small y. It's very hard to think of small y in the same way in for as applied to say people in the UK on average against people on average in say Malawi. It's a very poor country. So again, the economics of biosphere has to be extremely cosmopolitan in its outlook. It cannot use the same language regarding alterations in lifestyles in various parts of the world. Okay, 
But in the rich world, yes, there is a huge room. One reason there is a huge room is that our preferences, our attitudes are influenced by our neighbors. We're socially embedded. We're not ego egoists. Now there's another area where I drift apart from growth and development economics, which sees the whole um, operation of the economic system as being governed by dictated by egoists. The um, models that um, the Bank of England uses or the Treasury uses are based, when you dig down into the demand structure, is based on egoists. But we're not egoists. We are in some areas egoists. Some areas we are conformists. We want to do what others are doing. We don't want to stand out. In some other areas, we want to compete. We want to beat up on all the others, especially our friends. We want to be superior in some ways. So that's a very complicated area. But it does say that to the extent that we are socially embedded, there is a great room for comfort because shared reduction in non-essential consumption goods will not be as painful as we make out they would be. If you think we are egoist, yes, a drop in income by 10% is going to be horrible. But if all of us who are well off already uh, were to reduce our consumption of extremely ex uh, uh, ecologically intensive goods, we won't feel quite the same pain. We may in fact feel even better uh, because there are multiple equilibria, as we technically say, about in these systems where our preferences are socially embedded. So there is hope, and the review spends quite a bit of time discussing it. The interim report also puts its finger on that. And there's a counterpart of that in fertility decisions as well. There's a great deal of evidence that um, our fertility desires are influenced by the observed behavior of our neighbors or those who influence us or whose influence we uh, whose behavior influences us. There's now quite a rich uh, empirical literature on both the consumption side and the, the consumption side, it's really come from the uh, sociologists and anthropologists, people like uh, Barry Douglas had been writing about the social embeddedness of consumption for many, many years before she died. And then in, in the, 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 uh, on the fertility side, some of my own work has been on that in that direction and, um, uh, and, 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 um, uh, uh, colleagues in the United Nations Population Division, um, uh, including my own daughter, she, with whom I collaborated on these matters. Um, so there's room for hope there. And one reason there is room for hope is that there's policy implications, family planning uh, methods, the way you uh, approach societies with family planning apparatuses could be tweaked to include the fact that collective involvement of women in a program would be quite different from the case where they come in individually. Well, then let me ask you to turn a little bit to the next phase where you'll be exploring options and recommendations. And uh, if you could say a little bit about where, which areas you think are the likely levers of change that will move us to a better place? Are you thinking about regulatory changes, pricing changes, uh, changes in the way we measure economic progress, behavioral incentives? And just following on from that, a question from Annie Kanji, who works in the Department for the Environment here in the UK, 
who asked, what would your advice be to policymakers on how we can address this crisis regarding biodiversity, not only at COP15, but also at COP26 on, on climate change? Well, again, there are as many policy tools as you've, as you've recounted just now, and plenty more that you haven't. Uh, there is no bullet point here. There's not one lever. There's not yet another lever. Uh, the, there is not, and one reason is that, of course, it's not even one index that we are looking for. At the end of the day, what I'm trying to do in the review is to provide a grammar in which we can discuss these matters, a consistent grammar. People will pick up, if they so choose, bits and pieces from it, depending on their interest. Somebody will pick up the, the possibilities of uh, an expanding notions of payment for ecosystem services, methods of creating insurance markets, insurance is institutions, rather, not so much markets, because the institution could be an amalgamation of private and public uh, collaboration. It could be international collaboration for endangering uh, global public goods. Um, then, of course, it will not just be one nation could, which can, which needs to, it has to be at the international level. So these, there'll be an enormous mix, and I'm hoping that the review has to be a template from which people can take their special interests and run with it. Uh, there'll be some who will be concerned with the way we measure progress. Uh, and there will be some of us, well, not me, because I'm now retired, who will say, can I create a graduate course out of this? <laughs> so that the next generation of economists, the ones I produce, are more literate about matters of importance. Okay. Well, I think that's a wonderful uh, note to end on. I wanted to thank uh, Partha in particular for sharing these uh, the, the, these preliminary findings. Uh, I wanted to thank everyone who's joined us. We've had a huge number of questions from all over the world, and we will share those with the review team so that that, that can inform uh, the, uh, the finalization of, of this report, uh, which we anticipate will be coming out in the autumn. Uh, and so we very much look forward to seeing the final Dasgupta report on biodiversity. And we're very grateful to everyone to for joining us today. And, uh, and please do join other LSE online events in, in the weeks and months to come. You're all very, very welcome. And thank you again, Partha, for, uh, for this excellent work and for this wonderful introduction to what, what, what's coming. Well, thank you very much indeed. It was a pleasure.